Hello again, brothers. It's always good to be with you, and I'm especially excited about the passage that we have to study uh, today, found in Matthew chapter 17. I invite you to go ahead and turn there. You know, one of my favorite quotes ever is by Tim Keller, and Tim Keller said this once. He said, religious people find God useful, and Christians find God beautiful. I think we learned last week uh, as we studied Matthew chapter 16 and looked at the confession of Peter uh, that he made about Christ and then Christ talking about his cross and then Peter trying to rebuke Jesus because he didn't want a savior that was going to a cross and then the challenge that Jesus gave regarding the disciples and for us our own cross in order to follow Jesus. I think the struggle for Peter and the disciples was that they found or they wanted to find a Jesus, a savior that was useful. They wanted a savior politically. They wanted a savior economically. Um, they wanted victory here on earth in a, in, a, in a tangible way that would have been recognized by the culture around them. They really wanted someone who would make Israel great again, like it had been under uh, David or they perceived it under David or Solomon. And last week, Jesus, of course, shattered that, um, that vision of a Savior who would be simply useful. Instead, he gave his disciples a vision of, of a Savior who would go to the cross. And this week, though, Jesus is going to give them an experience of his glory that they might find Jesus beautiful. I wonder if you struggle like I do sometimes to only see Jesus as useful and long to see Jesus as beautiful. My prayer is for all of us today as we study God's word that the Lord would work in us more and more that we might get a glimpse of our Savior, that we might grow in seeing Jesus as beautiful. Now normally I would jump into the passage and have us read it right now, but I want to go ahead and give us some background. So before I read Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 through 13, um, I want us to, to kind of look at the, the big picture going back to the Old Testament. And I put in your notes there in the introduction the places that I'd like to look. So first, turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18. In chapter 18, uh, in the midst of God speaking to the Israelites through Moses about um, how he was going to take care of them, the culture that he wanted to sh them to, uh, that, that was going to shape them. He spoke in chapter 18 about a new prophet that was to come who would be like Moses, but not be Moses. And here it is in verse 18, of, excuse me, verse 15 of chapter 18. Um, this is what it says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And then look what it says in verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so the Israelites and these disciples were waiting for this prophet like Moses that would come, whom God had promised. Now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, would speak in many places about the coming Messiah, about the coming Savior. But here in verse 
chapter 42, verse 1. Listen to what it says about the coming Savior. Isaiah prophesies this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. So God says, there will be a servant who, whom my soul will delight in, and I will put my spirit on him. And then at the very end of our Bibles, uh, so right before we get to Matthew, uh, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, so the last, um, uh, excuse me, the last um, chapter of that book and the very last verses of the Old Testament say this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so there had been promise that Elijah would come and he would proceed, he would be the forerunner of the Savior, of, of the Messiah. Now turn one more place before we read our passage. Turn all the way in the back of your New Testaments to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. And listen what Peter writes years later, after this moment uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Peter writes about this moment that he had with James and John and with, the, uh, with Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now it is in that context, thinking of a Messiah whom God said would be like Moses, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he will be someone that my soul, in whom my soul delights, and I will place my spirit on him. Um, Elijah, the prophet, will proceed, will be the forerunner of this Messiah. And Peter then later says, we were with him on the holy mountain. This isn't, some, this isn't just some vision. This isn't just some dream. This is something that happened. We didn't make this up. This is what happened that day. So let's read that, brothers. Matthew chapter 17, beginning uh, at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is our desire, wherever we are listening to this, whether we are in our small group uh, with other men, whether we're in our own uh, home, family room, a study, whether we're at work on a lunch break, Father, whether we're in a car driving somewhere, um, Lord, we desire that you would speak to us, that wherever your word reaches us, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, that you would uh, transform our hearts and our minds, that we might get a glimpse of you. Father, um, we struggle to see you useful. We long to see you beautiful. So speak to us now, for your servants are listening. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, I want us to see three things in this passage, which I hope will encourage us and strengthen us in our daily walks. The first thing I want us to see is that on this mountaintop experience, this glimpse of glory, there is a majesty that we as men must see. And we see that in verses one through three. Right away it says, um, you know, six days, after six days, Jesus took them. Why does he say six six days? Um, The Gospel of Mark um, records this same event in Mark chapter nine, and it it says six days from the time that Jesus had spoken these words. In the Gospel of Luke chapter nine, it also records this event. Now it says about eight days, and that's just a, a, a Greek way. Remember, uh, Luke was, uh, was speaking uh, to the Greeks that, um, uh, that uh, eight days was saying about a week. So the point is, there was a very short time between what happened in chapter 16 and what happens now. And it's, it's very intentional that the disciples, or excuse me, the apostles who wrote um, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, want us to understand this event in the context of what Jesus had said about his cross, about him being the Messiah, about who we were as followers of Christ coming after him. So this is the context. The context is key. And it says there that Jesus was transfigured before them. Um, This is different than the glory uh, that Moses experienced when he came down from the mountain. Remember, when he came down from Mount Sinai, it said that his face shone, but it was a reflection of what had happened to him. This idea of transformed, uh, transfigured, is a Greek word that means from the inside out. So something is happening in the inside. And whether it's here in Matthew, or in the Gospel of Mark, or in the Gospel of Luke, the the writers have a hard time um, describing this because it was so magnificent, because it was so completely other than what they knew. And we know a little bit of of what it's like to find it hard to describe something that you can see with your eyes and when you're there, you know it, but to give it to someone else, it's like words uh, fall short. One of my favorite places in the whole world is this little peninsula on the south end of St. Petersburg Beach in Florida called Paso Grill. It's about 20 blocks long and about three blocks wide. 
with Boca Ciega Bay on one side uh, and on the other side, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And because it faces directly west, the sunsets on Paso Grill are stunning. And one of my favorite things to do is to just sit there in the evening with Lynn and to watch these sunsets. And I wish I could describe them to you. In fact, pictures don't even do it well. I've taken pictures and it's like, ah, that's not quite it. This is what's happening with, uh, with Matthew and also happens with Luke and Mark. They're trying to describe the, the glory that they saw of Christ and, and, and they struggle with the words. But nevertheless, they want us to understand something magnificent is taking place, something completely other. Uh, it's like the, the, the curtain's being pulled back and they're catching a glimpse of the glorified Christ. And not only that, but it says that Moses and Elijah were there with them. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, scholars have, have talked at length and, and, about, and written at length about um, why Moses and Elijah. And there are a lot of things that I think would be helpful for us to understand why they are there in this moment. Uh, both Moses and Elijah had Old Testament roles in pointing to the coming Messiah. What we read in Deuteronomy 18, we understand that Moses was to be um, a, 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 a type of prophet. He was to, to give an example of what a prophet would look like in the Messiah. And so Christ would be the ultimate prophet. Moses was uh, the greatest human prophet, and he was foreshadowing Christ. Um, Elijah was the one who would foreshadow or be the forerunner of, of Christ. So both Old Testament roles in pointing to Christ. Both men, Elijah and Moses, had strange ends to their lives. Remember, Elijah was assumed up in the chariots of fire. Uh, Moses went up to the mountain, and he, he wasn't assumed in heaven. It isn't written. It says that God buried him there, buried his body there. He, is, he was buried by God. So no human saw these men uh, die. Both of these men, Elijah and Moses, had visions of God's glory. Moses had it on Mount Sinai, and Elijah had it on Mount Horeb. Both of these men suffered uh, rejection in their ministry. Um, they had a cross to bear. Um, everything wasn't victorious in their life. And both of these men together represent for us the law and the prophets. Moses, the law. Elijah, the great prophet. Remember, Jesus came, said, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. <clears throat> and so, both of these men being here at this moment of Christ's glory, this glimpse, glimpse of Christ's glory, would suggest that sense of fulfillment, Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. But at the same time, this was to show Jesus' supremacy over Moses and Elijah. He is the one who is great there. He is the one who is transfigured, not Moses and Elijah. He is the one who is who from the inside has the glory of God. Now the disciples would have struggled the whole time uh, before this moment to see Jesus as, as not just a great man, to, to really understand that he was the Son of God, um, obviously would have had to come from uh, the Holy Spirit revealing that to them. So they would have, they would have struggled to only see Jesus as a man, even a, even a great man. Well, what about us? What about us as men in here in, in 2021? We know from our Bibles 
the deep theology that Jesus Christ in his incarnation is fully God and fully man. Or as my um, uh, college professor used to say, Dr. Krabendam, um, Todd, what is 100% plus 100%? And you know, somebody would foolishly say, well, it's 200%. He would say, no, in Christ, it's 100%. So he's fully God, 100% God. He's fully man, 100% man. But he's not two parts. Somehow in the incarnation, this great mystery, he is both God and man. He has a deity and a humanity. Sometimes I think our struggle is that we don't really grasp enough of either. I don't think we understand sometimes enough the humanity of Christ, um, how he really does identify with us. He knows what it's like to be like us, our stuff, suffering, our struggles, our shame. But he also is fully God. And sometimes I think we don't grasp that enough. We don't grasp the beauty of Christ. In fact, recently in the last decade or two, I feel like we've tended to focus on the humanity of Christ in our worship and that he's our friend and our brother. And those things are true. But he's also, as Paul writes in Colossians, he is uh, the firstborn among all. He is uh, the, the supreme. In him, all things hold together. And he is before all things. Um, and he is preeminent. Um, when Paul writes about him in Philippians, he talks about Christ being exalted and being given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Um, Jesus is magnificent. Christ is everything. He is not just a great man. He is not just sort of God. And we, brothers, I think, need a greater vision more and more of this glorified Christ. Um, we need to understand from our Bibles that Christ is beautiful, beautiful. So how do we begin to do that? Well, I think that leads us to this next thing. We, the voice that we must hear. So the, the, the majesty that we must see is the glorified Christ. What is this voice that we must hear? That takes us to verses four through eight of chapter 17. It's interesting here. Uh, we've been in Matthew enough. Of course, Peter has to speak, right? Um, here uh, in Matthew, it just says that Peter started speaking. Um, in the account in Mark, it says that Peter didn't know what to say. He started speaking, but he didn't know what to say. Uh, Luke says Peter didn't know what he was saying. Um, uh, clearly, that didn't stop Peter. Um, being afraid, being in awe, being in that moment, not knowing what to say, uh, not knowing what he was saying. Again, he is just going to speak. And the first things out of his mouth, you just kind of feel bad for the guy. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. To which I imagine James and John were probably thinking, really, Peter? Of course. Of course it's good for us to be here. Did you just need to tell Jesus the transfigured Christ, Lord, it's good for us to be here in case he didn't know, in case no one caught that, that this was a great moment. Um, wow. Um, Peter stating the obvious uh, once again when it probably should have just kept his mouth shut. Then he goes on and he says, Lord, let me set up three tents for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses, one for you. Again, Luke says he just didn't know 
what he was saying. And you think to yourself, what, what were you saying, Peter? Um, was it that you wanted to stay in that moment? You know, hey, you know, let's just live up here on the mountain. I mean, Moses and Elijah are here. Let's just be here. Um, was it because you wrongly thought that, that uh, Jesus was now elevated to the same level as Moses and Elijah? And that's what you thought in that moment? Um, or is it probably like what Luke said, you just didn't have a clue. You were just talking, but your mind hadn't been engaged yet. Um, well, before we leave that and before we're too hard on Peter, I'd have to confess to you that uh, these moments, and this one is, uh, in particular, is very convicting. Uh, very convicting for those of us who maybe are, are quick to speak. So many times, whether it's in a Bible study context or even in a conversation regarding the Lord, how many times do you find yourself saying, well, I think, and then you give what you think. And oftentimes, I've thought, even though those words come out of my mouth, hey, it kind of doesn't matter what you think, Todd. It only matters what Jesus says. I also have been con convicted lately of that passage in, uh, the, uh, in the book of James, where it says everyone should be slow to speak and quick to listen, uh, which of course leads to slow to become angry. But slow to speak, quick to listen. Clearly, Peter here is quick to speak, slow to listen, and it's a conviction for us all or a, a warning to us all. It goes on in this passage to say that a bright cloud enveloped him. Um, the reason I think that Matthew uh, puts it there, I said it, I think, it's not true. The reason that uh, this exists, scholars would say, is because uh, this is to, to describe the Shekinah glory. There was, there wasn't, it wasn't just a cloud, but there was something spectacular. There was, there was glory in this cloud, Shekinah glory, like what came to rest on, uh, on the temple. And notice in uh, Matthew, Matthew's account here, that it just interrupts Peter. So Peter's speaking and the cloud just comes in. <laughs> and God just starts speaking. Just going to speak right over the top of Peter. He's just going to interrupt Peter. And notice what God says in this cloud. This, interrupting Peter, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, those are the words from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Be quiet, Peter. Be quiet, James. Be quiet, John. Be quiet, Todd. Be quiet, amen, men. And listen to him. Notice also that in that moment, uh, they were terrified. They were overwhelmed. As they catch a vision of Christ glorified, as they hear the voice of God, um, what do they do? They do what, what men and women do throughout Scripture. They are terrified. They are in awe. It's overwhelming. And they fall on their faces. Um, they're just undone, as Isaiah said, when he faced the glory of God. Or when John faces it at the beginning of Revelation, he says, I fell at Christ's feet as if I were dead. So they're overwhelmed by that great and powerful moment. And then notice also that it says um, in verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them. Jesus came and touched them. So though God is transcendent, 
that he is completely other, that he is outside of our realm, and Christ, who is fully God, is, is seen in that moment in his transcendence, in his completely otherness, in the fact that he is fully God and they're seeing his glory. He is also imminent. He's also one who is fully man. And he comes and it says, and he touched them. And then notice also what it says. When they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus only. God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus comes and touches them. And when they lift up their eyes, they see Jesus only. Brothers in the world in which we are living right now in our own experience of our own lives, isn't it true that we find ourselves listening to so many other voices besides Jesus? And we find ourselves looking at or seeing so many other things instead of Jesus. And I think the challenge here is again, even as we see this moment that Jesus has with Peter, James, and John, that we must focus our lives to listen to him. That's why I'm so grateful for you men who have been committed to, uh, to access this Bible study throughout this pandemic. It's been a long time since we've met, and I, I long for the day in the fall when we will gather together again or have that opportunity to gather together again uh, to study God's Word. But you have, you have desired to be faithful throughout this year, throughout this over a year now pandemic, and you've desired to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him. Oh, that God would give us the grace to, to shut out those other voices and stop trying to listen to this and listen to that, but instead in our fears, anxieties, and our hopes, and our dreams, that we would listen to Jesus. And secondly, that we would see no one but Jesus only. That we would take our eyes off of other things and instead fix our eyes on Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith. What a beautiful moment, touched by Jesus. And when they lift their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the voice, brothers, we must hear. And finally, the message we must tell there in verses 9 through 13. Now, some of you are thinking, Todd, I think you got this wrong. This seems odd. You've entitled this section, The Message We Must Tell. But clearly in verse 9, it's Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, tell no one. <laughs> tell no one what you've seen. But notice that's not all that he says. He says to them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So Jesus does want them to tell. He just wants the timing to be right. And we learned this last week. Why does Jesus keep telling his disciples, don't tell anybody about me as the Messiah. Don't tell anybody about my glorification. Why is he saying that? Because he knows unless they understand what they've seen in light of the cross, the death and um, the resurrection of Jesus, they will get this message wrong when they tell the message. They will tell a Jesus without the cross. They will tell a glorified Christ without the cross and the resurrection. And that is not the Savior. That is not the Messiah. At the center of who Christ is, as we learned last week, is 
his death, and his resurrection. And so there is a message that must be told, but he tells Peter, James, and John, don't tell it quite yet. Now, I think we can all relate to Peter's desire to stay on the mountaintop. So though some of us might have been wise and kept our mouths shut and not spoken, while others of us may have spoken and said something stupid like, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I think we can all relate to Peter's desire to stay on that place. What a glorious place that was. How beautiful that moment must have been. And that glory that they experienced on that mountaintop, man, that seems a lot better than what they heard from Jesus six days ago when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die at the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself. You must deny your physical lives and take up your cross and follow me. Okay, well, that's that was six days ago, and now they're up on this mountain. And yes, Peter probably is thinking, I like this better. And I think we can all relate that the worship moment that they had experienced there on the mountain would be better than what you see there in verse 14 when they end up back among the crowds and back among those who are broken and sinful and struggling. Oh, it would have been better, Peter probably thought, maybe James and John too, just to stay there on the mountaintop in that moment of glory. But what happened? In all three cases, all three Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, Christ took them down from the mountain. And he took them down from the mountain for a reason. And the reason was that there was a mission to accomplish. And he told them, I, I, you don't speak of this until you see me raised from the dead. But he was going down from the mountain to go to Jerusalem to go experience and the cross, to, to take on our sin to die for us, to pay the price for our justification, to be raised again from the dead, and then to be ascended uh, into heaven, to, to be glorified in his, uh, in, his, in his resurrection and his ascension. And so uh, this was to happen, and this is what he had to take his disciples to. But even after that, he wasn't going to take his disciples with him into heaven. He was going to leave them behind because there was a mission to accomplish, not out up on the mountaintop, but down in the valley with the crowds. Brothers, you know there's a reason that God didn't take you and me with him to heaven the day we came to know Christ. And it seems in many ways that it might have been better if God had just taken us. Whatever moment it is that you came to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, in many ways, it would have been good if he would have just taken you to heaven in that moment. And the reason I say that is because you and I both know we've, we have sinned since that moment. Um, we have, like Peter, had moments where our actions and maybe even our words denied Christ. Um, there have been moments when um, we, have, uh, uh, we have brought um, disrespect, um, if not a defamation of the name of Christ by our behavior, by our words. Um, we haven't always been a good witness. And yet Christ has left us here and not taken us to heaven, even though it might have seemed like a better idea to take us in that moment so we wouldn't mess up the gospel 
being delivered to the world. But no, Christ has a different plan, and that is to use people like you and me to bear witness. You see, the reason that we have been left behind and not taken to heaven at this moment, the reason that you and I are still alive right now is that we would bear witness to the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that we would bear witness to the cross of Christ, that we would bear witness to the glory of Christ. That's why we're here. Brothers, that's the only reason why we're here. That's it. And everything we do is supposed to emanate from that. We, we haven't been swept up to the mountaintop. We haven't been swept up to heaven. We've been instead brought into the valley, brought to the crowds, and we've been brought there for a purpose. And the purpose is that we would bear witness to Christ, that we would bear witness in our homes to our wives, that we would bear witness to our children, that we would bear witness of Christ to our grandchildren, to the people with whom we work, to our friends, to our enemies, to people that are not like us, to people that we wouldn't normally even associate with, but again, as followers of Jesus, we're not normal. And we actually have a message to bring, a message to tell of the one who is glorified, the one who, who speaks and we need to listen to him, the one in whom we want to fix our eyes. That is the reason, brothers, you and I are still on this earth. You know, the disciples didn't know, even as they walked down from that mountain, they didn't know what you know about Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection. No, you know better than they did in that moment. And you know what Elijah and Moses could only have looked forward to in that moment. You, by God's mercy and grace, you know that now. And the Spirit of, of the Lord doesn't just dwell in a cloud that engulfs us. No, because of the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of the Lord has come to rest in you. So it's not just a, a Shekinah glory that is out there, but it's something that God, through His mystical union with us, has put uh, in us. And so Jesus is not just useful to us. No, He is beautiful. He is everything to us. Brothers, I do pray that even as we meditate on these words in this passage, that it would lead us to think of other places, places like Psalm 104 or Philippians chapter 2 or Colossians chapter 1, and we would meditate on the beauty of Christ, that we might have a fresh vision, fresh eyes to see the glorified Christ, to get a glimpse of His glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty and the power of your word. Thank you for showing us Christ. Thank you that we have the words of Christ and that we can listen to him. Help us by your spirit's power to fix our eyes on Christ. And Lord, help us to speak. 
Help us to speak to our neighbors, speak to our friends, speak to our workmates, speak in our homes. Help us to, to speak of the resurrected Christ who was born a cross for us. And help us to tell the world how beautiful you are. We pray this in the matchless name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, brothers.